Hello everybody and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host Dr. Stephen Platt, thank you very much for downloading this final episode of 2022 and it's our year in review episode. That's right, it's that wonderful period just after Christmas where nobody's sure what day it is. Well, listener, I can tell you that today is Wednesday, my dudes, and for this final Wednesday of the year we're looking back on the films that we reviewed in 2022. As is customary for this programme, the films that we watched over the course of the year, 51 in total, came from a variety of time periods, genres, creators, all sorts of differences, so the films that we're going to be talking about are a bit of a random collection. As always, we're going to be doing our top five and bottom five ranked films for the year based on the rankings that were given by our wonderful guests over the course of the reviews this year. So let's begin with our top five films in 2022. Coming in at number 5, T2 Train Spotting, with an overall score between the three reviewers of 8.66 out of 10. We watched Train Spotting 2, or T2 Train Spotting, however you want to say it. Um, we decided to watch it because we had reviewed Train Spotting, the original film, in 2021. So myself, Tegan Mulvaney, and Jason Dolly got back together again to watch uh, the sequel and see what we thought of uh, this film. M- my memories of this film, um, because it was towards the start of the 2022, um, it was towards the start of the year, uh, my memories of this film are that it was... It was, and this is not surprising considering it's a Danny Boyle film, uh, extremely visceral, <laughs> a very a very visceral um, experience, but one that actually did a, a pretty fantastic job of being an interesting sequel. It wasn't just a sequel for the sake of, you know, oh, the big big cash grab or anything like that. Although of course those motivations are are always there, um, but it was really interesting to look at. You know what, I do want to see what these characters look like 25 years on. I want to see where life has taken them. And also, not just them, but their surroundings. You know, um, I, I thought it was really interesting that there was a focus on how the city itself had changed and had been sort of... Uh, developed uh, so that the facade looked quite uh, nice and pretty, but there were still those underlying problems. Uh, fantastic performances across the board. Uh, Ewan McGregor, of course, back uh, in in the lead role and just um, just doing a really good job, uh, as, as indeed he does in most things, but uh, just doing a really good job of inhabiting the Renton character and, and sort of showing a, a guy who did have some regrets, but maybe not 100% remorseful about uh, what he did in the events, the first train spotting. And of course, the fact they were able to get Johnny Lee Miller, Ewan Bremner, and Robert Carlyle back as those uh, key lead characters was was fantastic. And just, just a really, really interesting follow-up and seeing how both Edinburgh and these characters who lived in Edinburgh had changed. Um, I still think the first train spotting is, is a slightly better film, but it's not a big margin uh, between the two, and certainly it is a sequel that that complements the original, so a a really, really good film. If you haven't gotten around to watching The Second Train Spotting but have seen the first, uh, absolutely do. And if you haven't seen either Train Spotting film, watch them both. Uh, Very, very good films. At number four for 2022, Beauty and the Beast 
from 1991. That's right, the uh, animated classic from Disney uh, finished with a score of 9 out of 10 from our free reviewers. Um, It was one of two films that I gave 10 out of 10 to this year, Um, and that is simply because I don't know that this film could have been any better than it was. Um, the the cast are exemplary. Um, the the animation is beautiful. The story is well told. It's not overly long. The music and the songs are fantastic. It it is just one of the outstanding works from Walt Disney Animation Studios. And for my money, I think it might be the best film that they produced. Certainly in the two D animation uh, realm, um, I I think it is the absolute peak of what they achieved. I know other people's tastes may vary. Some would prefer The Lion King, some would prefer The Little Mermaid. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's shouts for Aladdin. Um, you know, there's there's lots of fantastic films that they've produced. I just feel as though Beauty and the Beast is is as good as it gets. Um, it, it, it was really, really wonderful to watch it. Um, and it's it's just a joy. I, I always have a good time watching it, um, and, and it was a real pleasure to, to go back and watch it this year. And uh, all the more poignant, of course, uh, subsequent to us reviewing it with the passing of Angela Lansbury, um, who, as Mrs. Potts, was um, was was just superb. And, and again, you know, she 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 steals the film musically speaking with with having that that one solo song but it's just absolutely wonderful um a really really great film uh I, again i i feel like most people listening to this will have seen beauty and the beast from 1991 if you haven't 100 percent, go and watch it it's it's absolutely fantastic at number three with an average score of nine out of ten 1957's 12 angry men this is an incredibly incredibly riveting film uh, the, the script is superb and it's no surprise that it is a script which has been readapted time and again on film and on stage just in so many different formats um the story of uh, this particular version uh, from 1957 following um the end of a murder trial uh, 12 men who uh, the film says are angry uh, who are jurors um, and they are all predominantly white american men are basically uh, being tasked with assigning uh, the guilt or innocence of the accused, who is a young person of colour. Their initial vote, 11 of the 12 uh, vote to say that he is guilty, but one lone juror, juror number 8, as played by Henry Fonda, uh, does not vote that way. Not because he believes in the innocence of the accused necessarily, but because he hasn't been convinced of the guilt. And so begins... Uh, an hour and a half, and it is only an hour and a half, it's quite a short film, Uh, but it begins this hour and a half examination of so many different subjects and themes, of justice, of morality, of uh, race relations in America. It's just so good, and the performances are absolutely fantastic. Um, You know, Henry Fonda, obviously, as the lead, gets... um, gets a lot of the the attention but uh like lee j cobb as juror number three who's you know one of the most awful people <laughs> that you could you could hope to meet um but but the, the, the thing is is we get to know a lot about these 12 characters even though we don't know their names we don't really know much about their lives outside of that jury room outside of their role as these jurors 
Um, but we get to know so much about who they are and how they think. Um, I particularly like Joseph Sweeney as juror number nine, who was the the, the old man, the, the, the oldest of, of the jurors. Um, you know, just, just wonderful. Jack Klugman as well as juror number five um, just does some wonderful... Um, it, it, it's just wonderful. Everyone is really good in it. The, the film uh, just, just does so much with what is... A relatively simple premise and you know in, in terms of what you're looking at visually the idea of looking at 12 middle-aged uh, elderly white men in a room in black and white doesn't sound the most visually appealing of films but the way that it's shot as well the way that um this film is put together you know the cinematography from boris kaufman is just excellent um if, if again if you haven't seen 12 angry men 100% go go and see this version. Uh, it's it's the reason why it is the preeminent version, and it's just superbly performed. At number two, with an average score of 9.33 out of 10, The Wicker Man from 1973. Just in case any of you thought that we really like the Nicolas Cage version. Uh, we haven't done that one yet, but we did do the uh, original film, uh, starring, obviously, Christopher Lee um, in just one of his most iconic roles as Lord Summerall and the the outstanding Edward Woodward as Sergeant Howie. Um, if you've not seen The Wicker Man, and if you don't know what The Wicker Man is about, um, I, I, I'm not going to say too much here, but maybe maybe just stop this recording soon, as uh, I'll stop listening to this recording soon, and, and go and watch it, because it is a film that is I think best experienced knowing just the bare basics. And those bare basics are um, that a police officer, Sergeant Howie, as played by Edward Woodward, is um, sent to a remote Hebridean island uh, up in Scotland to investigate the disappearance of a young girl. Um, and then when he gets there, he finds that the people of the island are a little bit standoffish and he also discovers fairly early on that they are not Christians like him and how he is a devout Christian. That's that's established very early on, but that they um, pay homage to pagan gods, uh, to, to their ancestral pagan gods or Celtic uh, gods. And we follow Howie on his investigations. And if you haven't seen the film before, stop, stop listening now um, and and go and watch it. Okay, you've done that? Excellent. We're now going to talk about uh, the ending of this film. Because the ending of The Wicker Man is its its biggest strength. And it has a lot of strengths. It has great performances. It's quite a low-budget film and doesn't suffer a lot of the issues that low-budget films tend to do on screen. It doesn't... I mean, it does look low-budget, but it doesn't look low-budget for bad reasons. Um, it, it feels appropriate for the time period of the early 70s um, and just the way that the mystery unravels uh, to the point where you know uh, or you find out when Howie finds out exactly what's going to happen and what happens is human sacrifice is um, is, is remarkable um, and, and just the the whole build-up to to uh, the iconic Wicker Man uh, to to that final uh, sequence um, when Howie discovers that uh, having believed that the young girl who'd been kidnapped was was going to be a human sacrifice 
um, and discovers that no, no, she's not a sacrifice. In fact, she was in on the whole thing and that Howie himself, an outsider, was always intended to be the sacrifice um, and was, you know, uh, basically going to help make the crops grow again um, was a wonderful twist. Um, obviously the sequence of Edward Woodward inside the giant wicker man as it is lit and he burns to death is incredible it's very scary <laughs> watching the entire village you know hold hands and sing a song around this this burning um, wicker structure with Howie and these animals inside but I also think it's it's one of the best for me it's one of the best screen adaptations of a discussion of faith and the discussions that uh, Howie and Lord Summer Isle have uh, based around their religious beliefs, which are incredibly different, but that they are both pretty vociferous on and and very dogmatic in some cases. Um, that the fact is is that they still have this open discussion of faith, and it's a really interesting look at um, Christianity as well. Um, Howie plays, sorry, Edward Woodward plays Howie with this. Um, just incredible amount of belief. It, it is it, it is not possible to watch that film and get the sense that the character of Sergeant Howie doesn't believe in God. He 100% is, is believing in... He has his faith, and he holds on to that faith right up until the very end. Um, and it's unusual in that it's a depiction of a very devout Christian that that isn't annoying, <laughs> if I can put it that way. You know, quite often we see uh, extremely devout um, religious characters, and particularly in Western media, uh, Christian characters, we, we tend to uh, stigmatise them, or they tend to be set up as being, you know, um, uh, bad to annoying to evil. Um, Howie is is not an evil man, uh, but he is very much a God-fearing man, and it's, it's a really fascinating uh, performance. And it's just fabulous. It's 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 incredible, and it it just makes what Nicolas Cage did <laughs> with the two thousand six version all the worse. It really does. Um, and yeah, just again, all of the top five films are absolutely films that you should go and watch. Uh, Wicker Man, um, yeah, go go and watch it, uh, and and be surprised uh, like I was um, that it was actually kind of a musical, or at the very least, a film with songs quite a lot of music in it uh, quite a lot of striking visual imagery as well so um, you know enjoy uh, it was it was a real pleasure to watch and as we said it was our number two film for the year our number one film for 2022 and the only film to get a perfect score from all three panelists of 10 out of 10 is guess who's coming to dinner we watched Guess Who's Coming to Dinner quite early in the year. Um, we watched it in February to mark the passing of the American actor Sidney Poitier. And this film, this 1967 drama comedy, was and remains spectacular. Um, from the performances, both of, uh, sorry, of Sidney Poitier, of Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, um, just just everyone in that film is absolutely nailing it. It created this feeling of the friction that exists still today, and certainly existed in the 60s, of um, interracial 
interactions. Um, the, the premise being that um, a, a young woman is returning home to, to the West Coast with her uh, boyfriend, who is in fact her fiancé, we find out. Um, she's white and he's black, and her family are all white, and her family, uh, her parents in particular, uh, raised uh, Joanna, this this uh, 23-year-old white woman. Um, you know, they, they, they raised her to be... Um, you know, open-minded and to be quite liberal. You know, they're, they're very left-leaning people. And then she comes home with someone who is black and says, oh, this is the the man that I'm intending to marry. And the wonderful thing is, is that um, her parents, um, Matt Drayton and Christina Drayton, as played by Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, aren't 100% supportive of it initially because they have to confront in different ways that even though they believe themselves to be very open and accepting that they have issues with with that they hadn't actually quite squared away in themselves um basically they have ideals that they say that they believe in and now they're being asked to prove it to an extent um particularly uh matt drayton as played by spencer tracy a lot of his reservations come from um, not so much the 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 man that's been brought home, uh, Doctor John Prentice, as played fantastically by Sidney Poitier. Um, although this is someone who he he doesn't know, um, but it is because of his concerns about wider American society. Um, but there are also issues within himself that he needs to. Uh, work on as well. Uh, Catherine Hepburn is always brilliant, but I think this might be her best role. Um, it's, it's She's got a lot to pick from. We're very lucky when it comes to Catherine Hepburn that there's a lot of fantastic roles. But the way that she shows complete support for her daughter's decision, despite the fact that she has some of those reservations that her husband has, you know, about the fact that it is going to be difficult for joanna and for john as a mixed race couple um but she's just right behind them from the beginning and going right we're going to do this and when her friend comes over and is you know at, at best catty and at worst incredibly racist um she fires her friend from the art gallery um, that they both work at she marches her out to the car gives her the money and tells her that she's fired never to darken her doorstep again. And it is just such an incredible shutdown and response of this person who is not supportive of her daughter's decision and of this family that they're creating. Um, when the parents of John arrive as well, the apprentices, um, and they also are shocked to discover that their uh, child is entering into a mixed race marriage um because they didn't know that joanna was was white um we have this wonderful thing where we see the four parents all in the same home feeling very awkward and not sure how to interact with each other um and the fact that the two dads get to get together and express their disapproval to one another and you know they they try and make the their kids not go through this this marriage because they want to protect them um it's it's just really really well performed and what i really love is matt uh matt's conversation with uh john's mother um with with uh, mary prentice 
and they have this conversation which to me i think is the absolute highlight of the film um where she talks about what romance and love is and uh, spencer tracy delivers this incredible final uh monologue basically um saying that he is going to approve the marriage uh and also that he knew the whole time he had no right to stop it um but also saying that they would be there to support these two uh no matter what happens uh and then they go and have the dinner and that's where the film ends it's it's just incredibly performed it's it's really nicely written it it is just incredible writing and it's made all the more poignant as well by the fact that spencer tracy was dying when this film was being made um and they didn't know if he was going to live through the shooting schedule he he did um just about i think he passed away less than three weeks after they finished shooting his scenes so um you know this is the 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 last thing that spencer tracy did um and it, it just makes it all the more remarkable um and it's it's just a wonderful film um and yeah well 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 worth the watch and um still quite pertinent to a lot of um issues that are around today uh which still include um you know the fact that some people do have issues with interracial relationships the film is a really remarkable time capsule of thoughts and feelings of the time and whilst those thoughts and feelings are shaped around the issues of yesterday the thoughts um remain very similarly shaped thoughts to ones that we have today it's just that the context has changed um and yeah i i i just remember coming away from that film and just thinking there's absolutely no way it could be scored anything less than 10 out of 10 i think it is it's absolutely hit it out of the ballpark it's it's a wonderful film Um, and a very deserving winner of our 2022 film of the year. And now, for our bottom five films of the year, where we get a little bit less reverential, and we discuss some of the films which were middling to bad to downright stinkers, and coming in at number five for our lowest ranked films of the year, Kung Fu Panda, uh, with an average score of five out of ten. I was a little surprised to find that Kung Fu Panda was here. Um, I quite enjoyed it. Uh, it was the first, of course, of the Kung Fu Panda trilogy, which we reviewed as our trilogy for this year. Uh, but then I remembered the fact that um, it was quite... Uh, problematic in some respects particularly there was a lot of uh, fat phobic commentary uh, around the fact that obviously the main character of Poe is a panda pandas are quite big and round Um, and whilst there is certainly a very sort of positive message being aimed at by this film uh, you know of going it doesn't matter who you are it's what you do and Poe's size is is a key part of that it's the way that the film demonstrates and talks about Poe's size, and particularly the way other characters bully him and don't really necessarily get comeuppance for that bullying. Um, certainly not that's shown in a way on screen, or those regrets don't really come through on screen. Um, I, I, I understand why maybe uh, this film got a lower ranking from uh, some of our reviewers. Um, it's 
I think it's still a a good film. I, I certainly don't think it's a badly made film, um, but that but that is certainly an issue with it. And I know for some people that won't be an issue. And if that's not an issue, you're probably going, oh, it's perfectly fine. And in a lot of respects, it is perfectly fine. It's um, certainly not my favourite of the three Kung Fu Panda films. I think Kung Fu Panda 2 is uh, a, a very strong film. Um, uh, Kung Fu Panda 3, eh, less so. <laughs> but yes, the first Kung Fu Panda film uh, coming in at number five in our bottom ranked film list. At number four... It's Star Wars, Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. It was always likely to be in our bottom five with an average score of 4.66 out of 10. The question is, um, how low could it go? And it does slightly better than Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, which was our second lowest ranked film uh, of 2021. Um, but it's it's not good. Uh, Revenge of the Sith, uh, despite being reasonably competent in some respects um the middle is incredibly boring um and that was the thing that really struck me watching it i hadn't watched episode three for a long time uh in its entirety before watching it for the podcast this year and it's it really drags in the middle um and you know the the order 66 stuff is interesting obviously the final lightsaber confrontation between um obi-wan and anakin skywalker is is a great sequence. Uh, it's it's a shame it's it's interrupted so much by Yoda and Palpatine having their fight, which is not as strong. Um, and just you know the way Padme is written, uh, dying of of sadness, and just there's just so much to not like about this film. I will still stand up for General Grievous being quite a cool design, if a bit of a naff villain in in some respects. Um, and also you know um, the the you know. God bless them. The actors, the actors try. Um, you know, you and McGregor really, really, oh, just just working hard to make make this um, to make this operate uh, properly. Um, but I think it's interesting because we reviewed episode three uh, a couple of weeks before the release of the Disney Plus Obi Wan Kenobi series, um, which is very much a sequel to this film in in a lot of regards. You know, looking at what happened to both Obi Wan and to Anakin Skywalker. Um, and I think that having having watched this uh, this series uh, so close after watching Revenge of the Sith, um, it does make me dislike Revenge of the Sith that, that little bit more, because I actually thought Obi-Wan, the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, was all right. I thought it had a pretty good story, um, and I thought it was actually quite well told. I know there's elements that maybe are dangling off the side that aren't as strong, but and obviously when you're presenting something in a in a television format, um, you you can do different things with the pacing that you can't do with a film, and also it's being made close to twenty years after this film. Um, you know, the, there's been a lot of changes in how star wars media is made you know there's all sorts of things that you can say um that maybe you know excuse some of the things from revenge of the sith but ultimately revenge of the sith is um a bit boring and that that really surprised me coming back to it because i do remember watching it in the cinema for the first time as a 15 year old going this is amazing this lightsaber fight's you know incredible um but yeah, it's a bit pants. I'm sorry. I know some people really enjoy the prequels. And, uh, you know, personally, I 
don't love them. Um, I but yeah, I'm not going to say anymore. Just just that this was not a great film. At number three, Wayne's World Two. Party time, not excellent in this case. Uh, we reviewed both Wayne's World 1 and 2 um, towards the start of 2022, and I think it's fair to say that uh, the first Wayne's World is not bad. You know, it's uh, you know it's it's a pretty fun comedy. It's, you know, maybe, maybe for um, newer viewers who weren't as engrossed in that sort of early 90s culture, maybe Wayne's World won't have that same appeal. Uh, but Wayne's World 2, which... I, I watched both the Wayne's World films as, as, as a kid, and I thought that Wayne's World 2 was funnier, but it turns out I just had bad taste, uh, or was wrong. Uh, because Wayne's World 2 is just not as good as, as the first Wayne's World. It, it is a, a poor iteration um, of, of that first film, and a lot of the things that I remember really enjoying fell flat watching it this time. Um, the concept of, of Wayne Stock um of, of you know having this this concert and um you know of, of wayne potentially confronting the fact that he's getting older i think could have been really interesting but it just felt like a really rushed production to be honest it felt like it was just capitalizing on the unexpected success of the first wayne's world and it just falls a bit flat uh, an average score of four out of ten from our three reviewers um it's it's not dreadful um it's it's. I would certainly say it's. It's a significantly better film than our top two entries in the worst films of 2022. Uh, but Wayne's World Two is is probably one that you can you can ignore. Um, and it doesn't even have Alice Cooper. You know. I mean, what, what's what's the point? Uh, coming in at number two, a mom for Christmas uh, with an average score of 3.66 out of 10. Um, yeah. It probably wasn't going to be great if it was a uh, made-for-television uh, Christmas movie. Um, but A Mom for Christmas is just a really a really strange fish. It, it, I mean, for starters, it's just the film Mannequin uh, being remade with, with a bit more of a Christmas bent to it. Um, but it, it's, it's just strangely written. It's not particularly appealing in a lot of respects. The performances aren't incredibly strong, although I, I do think Olivia Newton-John is is doing her absolute best. Um, but yeah, the, the, it, it, it made the concept of the fact that these mannequins and these figurines in the shops have a world and culture of their own. Somehow it focused on all the, the wrong bits of that culture, um, you know, and, you know, this is a film where we see a Santa mannequin brought back from the dead, having been ripped into several pieces by a bunch of mannequin elves and Victorian carol singers who perform essentially like a necromancer type chant routine to bring him back together. And it's not even... A really key part of the film to be perfectly honest but i was like i want to know more about that i want to know about these these mannequins that are coming in that don't have the faces and you know they've got the witch played by uh, doris roberts who is saying that she's trying to save all of the old mannequins that she can but the new ones are coming in and making it harder and it's like but what's so evil about these new faceless mannequins i want to know about the mannequin wars i want to know what's going on between these these two and we just don't get that uh, maybe I'm focusing on the wrong things, but I think also perhaps I was focusing on it just because um, 
it was a kind of boring iteration of a very well-trodden path of the essentially manic pixie dream girl uh, brought to life and trying to fit into a world where she doesn't quite get the rules, but she's cute, makes all sorts of those mistakes, so it's okay. Um, yeah, it's it's not great. It's not a great film. Um, could have been worse, but that's maybe not the best way, <laughs> the best thing for a film to be reviewed. So, yeah, a month for Christmas. Uh, coming in at number two in our uh, in our uh, worst films of the year, um, pipped by just one singular film. That film is Xanadu from 1980. It is our lowest ranked film of the year. It also got an average score of 3.66 out of 10, but in the case of a tie, we go with uh, the hasn't seen it guest. We go with their score, and uh, obviously the higher the score, the further up the list it goes. And um, Aaron van der Klee, who was our hasn't seen it guest for Xanadu, gave it 2 out of 10. And that's that's reasonably fair. I mean, I, I gave it 4 out of 10, but I'm willing to admit that at least one of those four points was for the excessive amount of the Electric Light Orchestra, um, and with ELO being my favourite band. Um, maybe that was a slightly biased thing uh, to do. Um, <clears throat> Xanadu is, is bad, and I, I feel really, really sorry that uh, in the year that we lost Olivia Newton-John, um, and this was her In Memoriam episode, the, the fact that the bottom two films that are on this list um, are both films that she was the, the lead for is um, is, is unfortunate. Um, Olivia Newton-John is not the problem with Xanadu. The problem with Xanadu is that it is just all over the place. It It is wild how how just badly put together it is. Um, it, 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 it's not it's not absolute trash. It, re- it really isn't absolute trash, but it, it, I think it is right in the sort of three to four out of ten range. There's there's a lot of a lot of issues with it. The, the idea of the story of you know a muse uh, coming into the the modern world and uh, sort of influencing a struggling artist is it's not a new story, but it's certainly a story that I think has been told better. Um, and it, it, it is very of its time. There's a lot of disco. There's a lot of roller skates. I like them, <laughs> but it's it's a little strange and all over the place. Um, it does get points for having uh, Gene Kelly. Um, in I, From memory, I think this was Gene Kelly's last film role. Um, and he's still pretty good. Um, and, you know, his his dance sequence with Olivia Newton-John is, is actually quite nice. Um, and, you know, some of the songs are good. You know, the songs that were written and performed by ELO. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm a big fan of All Over the World, and it's used quite well. And it, it's it's just filled with so many interesting stylistic non-sequiturs. Um, I forgot until I was going over my notes for this film in preparation for this episode that there's a Don Bluth animation sequence in the middle of it. Um and that came as a surprise when watching it for the first time, but the fact that I'd completely forgotten about it um, is is maybe not great. Um, so yes, Xanadu finishing uh, bottom of the pile for the year 2022.
2022 was an interesting year for the program. Uh, it was our fifth year. We celebrated our fifth birthday. Um, we celebrated it by having a big bracket tournament. Uh, we we hit um, 256 different films reviewed around the time of the fifth anniversary. And so we got uh, all of the films that we've watched, put them into a massive uh, online bracket tournament, a knockout tournament, where uh, fans of the show could go and vote uh, each day to decide who got through. And so uh, there were 10 rounds in the tournament, so we had 10 days of the film slowly getting whittled down. Uh, Ultimately, you decided uh, collectively that the best film of the first 256 that we watched was Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which was a surprising choice, but uh, certainly a pleasing one. Um, That was a really fun thing. Uh, I, I love a bracket tournament, and it was really fun to see what people's thoughts were and just how annoyed Rob Woods got. Uh, with um with everyone's choices um it, it, and yeah it was also lovely just to see people's thoughts uh you know and some of the matchups caused real headaches and there was a lot of discussion happening and it was really lovely to see and i think 2022 for me has been a year where i've um come to value the community that we have even more this this is not a a big world conquering podcast you know it's um and it, it probably won't ever be, and that's fine, because what it is, is a, for me personally, it's a really fun thing that I get to do with my friends uh, once a week. I get to watch a film, it's usually pretty good, um, and I get to watch it with two people uh, who I'm quite fond of, because everyone on this program is is someone that I would consider a friend, um, and it's it's just a real delight to get to do and then when we get the feedback from you our audience and uh, you know your interactions with the program and what you think of the films it it's just really lovely to have that ongoing conversation um and I, just a massive thank you to everyone who appeared on the program this year uh, we we have quite a large number of uh, guests uh, sometimes they appear uh, a couple of times a month. Uh, other people, uh, sometimes they'll only appear once a year. We still have a few guests who haven't been on for a couple of years, but they are, you know, welcome to drop in whenever they want. Um, it's it's just a real joy and a pleasure to get to do. Um, we watched some really interesting films this year as well. Of course, having done this program for five plus years, um, you know, we, we've gotten through quite a few of the classics. There's still a few we haven't touched on, but, you know, you know, we're starting to have to, I suppose, diversify what we're looking at a little bit. Um, and some genuinely really, really interesting films uh, this year. Uh, a couple of highlights for me. Um, Strictly Ballroom, which just missed out on the top five, um, but by the smallest margin uh, to Trainspotting. Um, but it's a, it's a delight to watch that film, and I, I just I loved watching it. Um, Strictly Ballroom was, was wonderful. Um, the Princess and the Cobbler, which I had never seen before. Um, the the 26-year animated uh, film that um, was, was chopped up and just, just the most incredible production history is an incredibly enjoyable film. Um, just... Yeah, a strange film, but but a really wonderful film in a lot of respects. Um, for me, I think the standout film of the year in terms of the film that made me think the most, though, was Lake Mungo, um, which was our uh, Australian film that was picked by you, the audience. Um, it has the capacity to create a feeling of dread 
that I have not seen in any other piece of media. It's not one that's widely known outside of Australia. It's not even widely known within Australia, to be perfectly honest. It's very hard to get a hold of. Um, we're very lucky that uh, Rob Woods came through for us on that one. Um, it's remarkable. It really is a remarkable film. It was also a film that only just missed out on, on our top five. Um, but yeah, I don't think I've kept thinking about a film more than I have with Lake Mungo. So do yourself a favour. If you get the opportunity to watch it, absolutely do. Um, this year also saw us review Mother, which is maybe the best film that I don't like. <laughs> I, uh, Mother was very confronting, um, as you know one might expect of Darren Aronofsky. And it's, again, that that's one I've been thinking about a fair bit since we reviewed it as well. Uh, other films that stood out this year as well, um, you know, we, we watched uh, Lawrence of the Arabia, which is a pretty spectacular film, as you might expect. Um, you know, E.T., the extraterrestrial, um, you know, largely quite good, maybe not holding up in some parts. Uh, Kung Fu Panda 2, which we mentioned earlier, just a really fabulous uh, animated film. Uh, this year we also did a month of Robin Hood films, and uh, for those who are interested, the top ranked of the four Robin Hood films we watched was the 1938 Errol Flynn version, with an average ranking of 7 out of 10. Uh, it's very good. The Disney Robin Hood is a close second on that list, and it's also quite good. Um, the, you know, we got to watch the 1991 Robin Hood that wasn't Prince of Thieves. It was the other one with Uma Thurman. That was, that was quite fun. That was quite a good film. Um, yeah. Um, and Robin Hood Men in Tights, eh, it's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, just, just some interesting films. Uh, in terms of films that left a big impact as well, uh, we do have to give a special mention to The Apple from 1980. Uh, yep. Uh, I can I can confirm it is the film that made me the angriest I have been this year. Um, it was goodness me, and it's just the ending. It it's just the ending, and it just left me so angry. But I love it now for doing that. It is again the apple. I'm not going to say much more about it um, in the in here in this bit. But um, my goodness, if you get a chance to watch it, you absolutely should. Somebody who did get a chance to watch The Apple was Robert Woods. Uh, now, you might be going, yeah, I know, he was on the programme that when you reviewed it, but he's gotten a chance to watch it again in a cinema. That's right, uh, Luna Leadville here in Western Australia hosted a screening of The Apple, uh, allowing people the opportunity, the rare opportunity, to watch uh, this 1980 film, largely considered not a very good film, but watch it with a live audience uh, interacting with it. And uh, I caught up with Robert Woods um, online to uh, ask him what he thought of the screening. How are you, Robert? I'm about a seven. Excellent. And Robert, um, welcome to the uh, end, end of year review episode. It's the first time we've had a guest on on this episode, so welcome. Oh, I'm honoured. What a privilege. <laughs> Indeed, you should be. And uh, the, Well, we're privileged to have you, though, because um, I want to talk about The Apple. Now, uh, we reviewed The Apple during this year, um, and it's still the film that made yes. me the angriest. It, it, we got to the end of 2022. It's the film that made me the <laughs> angriest. <laughs> 
Um, so <laughs> that's uh, amazing. Yeah, and the reason that I've got you on there for this is um, you got to go to a cinema screening of this rarely seen film uh, at Luna Leaderville here in Perth. Yes, I, this this is this is a once in a lifetime occurrence. I think I I don't think this film will ever screen in this country ever again <laughs> so it was an amazing experience to to get to happen to see it this particular year as well um yeah excellent so uh for the folks at home who weren't with you in the cinema um what was the experience like i i, I would like to ask actually to begin with um how sizable was the audience that you had um we were in cinema five at luna leaderville which is maybe a 50 seater for it's probably less than that 40 50 seater so it's not a massive cinema but uh there was there was a good 30 35 people there that oh, seemed to pack out that that space um and there was clearly a mix of first time viewers um people that go along to every cult screening that they do at the end of each month mm. and then a bunch of people that knew the movie and were there to see it on the big screen it was a it was a good half and half mix i think um okay. and the reactions of everyone was just delicious <laughs> mm. was there a particular reaction that that stood out for you i have a feeling i i I, I know which one it is that got the biggest reaction, but well, was it Mr. Tops? Was that the thing that got the biggest reaction? <laughs> I think I think at that stage people were so bewildered by the experience that that um I I actually think the biggest reaction the film got was the um the I'm coming for you uh, number yes the way that that just escalated into. Uh, more and more um unsubtle yeah that, it's a very unsubtle song by the end it's uh um there was there was a, a lot of <laughs> audible gasps and uh, jaws on the floor um it was it was amazing mm. um but actually i will say that um speed the the song speed mm. That one got people singing along and it oh. actually got applause at the end of it. Okay. People applauded at the end of that number just because of the sheer energy and, and fun of it. It's such a weird film because it starts off kind of well enough. Mm. Like it just gets more and more bizarre as it goes on. So people were at, at the start of it were like, oh yeah, this, this could be a fun little film. And then mm. just bit by bit these weird little things keep happening yeah and, and more and more people are like reacting bigger and bigger um until by the end of it people would just like laugh crying mm. <laughs> through the end of it yeah it was so funny um I, I i would like to know how did the uh how did the dancing fireman go down because that was always my favorite bit <laughs> that got a huge laugh i i will say i think the the guy on the gurney got mm. a, a bigger laugh <laughs> um than the fireman in particular and the nuns got a good laugh as well oh good um but that number yeah was was a delight um, was it? and it was 
it was especially fun to hear um, Tegan, who is also on the podcast quite mm. often. She was sitting a few rows behind us, and I could just hear her laugh in particular. <laughs> I could hear it coming out, which was great. Excellent. Um, was there anything from watching this film on a big cinema screen? Was there anything that you noticed this time about the film, uh, have, having seen it in a cinematic setting for the first time? Um, you know, there's one thing that I hadn't really clocked onto if it were not for the audible gasps of shock. Um, and that is uh, Mr. Boogaloo's number, How to Be a Master. Mm. Just how how shockingly close to the line that <laughs> probably, mm. probably goes over the line that film goes to about about um, how to how to collate slaves mm. and be their master, and just with the the number of um, uh, people in the audience were like, "Oh my god!" to these lyrics, and like, I guess I just was like bopping along to a fun little Rastafarian number when I watch it at home. But mm. I was like, "Oh yeah," the realization that what was what was actually being said in this number was mm. quite shocking. Like, yeah, I don't know why I never connected that to before. Yeah, well, that, that, I mean, that's really interesting though, because the, the thing with a lot of these films, which are considered um, like the worst films ever made, or this was part of uh, Luna Leadable's Trash Cinema collection, their their screenings. Yeah. Um, I suppose for a lot of people, unless it's something like The Room, which has regular sort of cinematic adventures or screenings, um, films like The Apple just don't get put on in the cinematic setting. And um, I'm, I'm guessing from from what you've said, um, perhaps we as viewers lose a bit of the potential meaning that is in there. Whether or not the film intended that meaning um, is kind of beside the point. Yeah. Yeah, it was a uh, an eye opening experience, um, mm. and also, but mainly, above all, it was just so much fun to watch with a crowd that were all so vocal and enthusiastic about the madness that was unfolding on screen. Um, uh, a friend brought along a whole bunch of BIM marks, and we were all wearing them. Wonderful! <laughs> them so the triangle on um, the forehead. But a nice holographic triangle on, yes. on our foreheads or, or cheeks. Um, Miriam Margulies went down a treat. Of course, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of a lot of laughter at her scenes. Um, yeah, and uh, a lot of laughter at the things you would expect. Actually, um, Mr. Boogaloo, the the actor, like his performance got <laughs> got a lot of love. I think on the night. Um, just for its its uh, camp ridiculousness. Mm. Yeah, it, I mean the whole film is camp and ridiculous, so uh, that's oh, that's yeah. quite quite the standout. If you've managed to be the camp ridiculous one in there, um, I, I I I think we should just just finish with um, with the ending of the film. So because <laughs> obviously the film ends with Mister Tops, and for people who haven't listened to that episode we did or haven't seen the Apple. <laughs> Just go and listen to it, because uh, um, yeah, the Mister Tops ending. I'm still getting a little annoyed about it now, even though I'm, even though I think it's hilarious. It, I still remember how annoyed it made me feel. <laughs> so, so Mister Tops turns up and delivers all of our um, good characters to the Rapture with his Cadillac, 
which is what happens in the film. Um, when when the when the credits rolled on that, what what was that reaction in that room? What were people doing? Were they throwing their seats around? Were they screaming? What was happening? <laughs> it was just. It was just honestly. It was just cry laughing. There was. It was just utter bewilderment. <laughs> it was pretty much as soon as that badly superimposed Cadillac started turning around in the sky and like starts coming down from the sky. People lost it. Mm. And from there until the end of the film, like almost every single line is just like, what the hell is going on? It was, it was just amazing. Well, it sounds like you had an amazing time, Robert. And I'm so pleased you were able to see this film uh, on the big screen. So well done. Yes, I'm so happy. It really was the highlight of my year in the cinema. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts on this, and uh, we look forward to seeing you in 2023. My pleasure. Look forward to it. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Looking back at 2022 and the films that we watched, 51 in total, it was... As always, a pleasure to have you listening along with us, and indeed, a privilege. What does 2023 hold? About 50 more films, hopefully. Uh, Yes, uh, we are obviously still rolling along, looking at bringing you an episode each and every week. A small uh, programming note, though. Uh, Normally, um, because we've been doing this for enough years now where we have a normally, January is our Australian film month, where we watch Australian and the occasional New Zealand film. Uh, and talk about them because we are an Australian podcast and Australian cinema is remarkable and we want to use this program with whatever tiny platform it has to at least shout and go, look at these films over here, they're really good. Um, Now, normally we do do that in January because that's when the uh, national holiday of Australia Day is, Uh, but we are not going to be holding it in January for 2023 and the reason is because our 300th episode is due to drop in the middle of January. That's right, we are very close to hitting 300 episodes of this program. Um, and we've got a a special film lined up for that episode, uh, but it's not a piece of Australian cinema. We could maybe try and wrangle it, because uh, there's an Australian actor in it, uh, but that would probably be a bit disingenuous. So what we're going to do instead is January is going to be... a pretty normal month, you know, we're just going to be looking back at films, you know, uh, films that you probably should have seen by now. Uh, We're going to be looking at them and seeing uh, what we can do. We'll, of course, celebrate our 300th episode in the middle of that. And our Australian film month is going to fall in February. That's right, uh, February uh, has four Wednesdays in it, so it's going to be the exact same length as the January uh, film month was. Uh, And we're going to be watching four uh, films in that time period. So yes, just for those fans... Of um, of Australian cinema, we're not we're not dropping it for 2023. It's just going to be happening a month later than usual. Um, and also coming up in 2023, well, some interesting films. Um, we will of course be looking at the previous year's Oscar-winning film, uh, which was Coda, uh, around the time of the Oscars. So it'll be interesting to see what people think of Coda. Um, for the May the 4th, for the uh, Star Wars Week episode, uh, we have finished the prequel trilogy, so we're now moving on 
to the sequel trilogy. Uh, you can cheer or boo uh, as appropriate to your feelings on the matter. Uh, we will be starting with, of course, episode seven, The Force Awakens. Um, so that should be quite a bit of good fun. Uh, we will be looking at doing another trilogy of films at some point in the year as well. Um, of course, you know, Halloween and Christmas films, as, as one would always expect. Uh, just Just a whole bunch of fun films coming up in 2023 and we hope that you'll be there to join us as we go through these films uh, a great way for you to be there is to follow us on our facebook page just search for the cinema catch-up club on facebook and you can get news and updates there uh, we also have a patreon if you go to patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast and uh, for as little as a dollar a month you get bonus goodies and features um Fans of our Patreon uh, will no doubt remember that uh, we have had episodes called The um, Cutting Room Floor, which is where all the bonus extra bits from episodes get cut, sometimes end up in a nice big uh, grab bag episode. Uh, there hasn't been one of those Cutting Room Floor episodes for a while, but I can confirm that in 2023 there is at least a couple of those episodes incoming, so uh, look out for them as we enter the new year. Um... And finally, you can subscribe. Uh, we release a new episode each and every week. Um, we can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, basically wherever you uh, you get your podcasts from, we can be found there. So subscribe to us and um, let us know where you're listening from. Uh, you know, I do get some of the analytics about where people are listening from, and obviously we have quite a large Australian listenership and a large American listenership and, uh, you know, there's a few people in Britain listening and things like that, uh, but we want to know... Um, where you're listening from, uh, and, and please drop us a line. It's it's always lovely to hear from you. Uh, but that is it for this week, this month, and this year. Uh, so long, 2022, and hello and welcome, 2023. Uh, we look forward to uh, all the cinema that it's going to bring. That is all from me, though. So until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.